Let us pray together. Lord, you are faithful. Lord, you are so, so good. And you reach out to every tribe and every nation and every person on the planet over time. And we ask now that as your scriptures are read and your word proclaimed, you would say whatever it is that you want to say to us this day and this moment in time. Guide us, direct us, empower us, forgive us, have mercy on us, and lift us up and empower us for new life through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's in the wonderful name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that we pray. And all who agree say, Amen. Our scripture lesson today comes from the book of Acts chapter 15. Let's share in God's good word together. The apostles and the elders met together to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, My brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message of the good news and become believers. And God, who knows the human heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as He did to us. And in cleansing their hearts by faith, He has made no distinction between them and us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. You know the routine. A person or a company or an entity does something controversial or problematic, and the next thing you know, it's a social media storm. Somebody posts this, another person posts that, and before you know it, it has snowballed. It is a firestorm. It is out of control. And that person or that entity or that company is canceled. It's a cancel culture. It's a problem. And it's a temptation that we all have. Today, I want to look at the book of Acts in chapter 15, where we find a cancel culture and how they were over to, able to overcome it. So today's message, the answer to cancel culture. My name is Mark Foster. I'm the founding senior pastor of the people known as Acts 2 United Methodist Church, the people empowered by the Holy Spirit to, for the very transformation of the world. And so we would like to think that this cancel culture might have been something that was only back then. But let me ask you, how many people have you written off in the last five months? How many people have you hit the snooze for 30 days or unfriend or if there was a dislike button? Oh, my goodness. How many things would we dislike these days? How many people are you just writing off in your life? Who are those people who don't understand the way we do things around here. You know those people, they, they can't seem to ever get it. If they would only do this, if they would only do that, things would be so much better. They just don't understand how it should be done or how it is done. Or maybe this question, if they would just fill in the blank, 
If they would just listen, if they would just get on page, if they would just do it the way we do it, we could get along and the world would be a better place. If you have answered any of these questions or thought these questions in your mind over the last few months, you're not alone, but you're also part of the cancel culture, something the church has struggled with since the time of the apostles in the book of Acts. So for the last six weeks, we have covered Acts chapters 1 all the way through 13. And in Acts chapter 1, Jesus has ascended. In Acts chapter 2, where we get our name, the Holy Spirit has come. And in Acts 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, the Jerusalem church has expanded to Samaria, all the way over to the west coast to Joppa and Caesarea, and north to Damascus, all the way up to Antioch, some 300 plus miles from Jerusalem. And so on the map, Jerusalem is down here in the heart of the land. Samaria is going to be about here. And then Peter's going to head over to Joppa to stay with Simon the Tanner, uh, which was not supposed to be done because tanners were dealing with dead animals, which made them unclean. And not only that, he was about to go see um, Cornelius, who was a Roman soldier, a leader of the Roman Italian cohort. Peter wasn't supposed to do any of that because these folks were unclean. He wasn't supposed to have anything to do with them. And after he does this, he basically is chastised as he comes back to the church of Jerusalem. But then there's another group that's sent out and Paul is trying to arrest the new church Christians in Damascus and bring them back to Jerusalem. And then it goes even beyond that all the way up to Antioch, some 300 miles to the north. And this continual stream of non-Jews known as Gentiles into the church produces a problem which had to be solved. If Jews and Gentiles couldn't even be in the same room together, how in the world were they going to be the people of God together as the church of Jesus Christ? And so here's the problem. Since Jews are the chosen people of God, must Gentiles, before they become Christians, first become Jews? This was a sincere question. They didn't know. If Judaism has exclusive rights to God, if they are the chosen people of God, and in some ways the reverse also to be true, the holders of God and their understanding of the one true God, then how in the world do you bring outsiders into that system? Or can Gentiles be received into the church in their own right? That's before the church at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. Because Jews could have no dealings with Gentiles by the scripture. Not as guests, not in business, not in any way. And yet God is moving through the power of the Holy Spirit to these people that they were formerly separated from. So how could they become brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ and share in worship, in singing, in holding hands together, praying for one another, and in meals? The food laws themselves would keep them separate. So what it would require is extraordinary manners and honoring others who had a very different upbringing. It would require Gentiles to only eat food, ultimately, um, that was prepared in certain ways that they weren't used to. And it would require the Jewish Christians to be more open and to all these things that had before in their life been things that they had to stay away from. It was very difficult on both sides. William Barclay writes it like this. He says, the principle at stake was quite simple and completely fundamental. Was the gift of God for the select few or for all the world. If we possess it ourselves, are we to look on it as a privilege? No. Or as a responsibility? 
And you'll remember that responsibility is the ability to respond. And that's what we want to do. We want to respond to a hurting world in the power and love and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Barclay goes on. He says, the problem may not meet us nowadays in precisely the same way, but there still exist divisions between class and class, between nation and nation, between color and color. We fully realize the true meaning of Christianity only when all middle walls of partition are broken down. Friends, he could have written this yesterday. He wrote it nearly 70 years ago in 1953. The struggle is real. The struggle continues. And it is our job for the very transformation of the world to break down every wall that would separate us from other children of God. So let's look at what the church did and what we can learn from it in our time. The scripture in Acts 15 verses 6 through 9 says this. The apostles and the elders met together to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter, right? Peter had been gone for a few chapters. Now he's back. Peter stands up and said to them, My brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message of the good news and become believers. And God, who knows the human heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as He did to us. And in cleansing their hearts by faith, He has made no distinction between them and us. And clearly, there was still distinction because Peter is calling it out, them and us. But that's what Peter says. God has made no distinction in ways where we naturally do. No distinction between them and us. And so it leaves us with a really important question. Who is your them? It's important that you can answer that. To invite God to begin to change your heart on whoever them is these days. We all have a proclivity um, to think of others as them. That they don't do the things we do. They don't, don't do it the way we do it. Um, they wouldn't do it the way we would do it if we were in charge. And so in Acts 15, they start to get to the heart of the matter. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? And he's referring there to the law, which is every rule in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's known as the Torah. On the contrary, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Because we know that the law leads to sin and death ultimately without the power and love of Jesus Christ, the risen one. No, Peter says, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. It is grace that saves us. It is grace that saves others. Now at the same time that Peter has come to Jerusalem for this very important meeting, so have Barnabas and Paul. And Barnabas and Paul witness to their experience of God's movement through the Gentiles as well. So Peter gets up and he says his piece, and then Barnabas and Saul get up and say what they've seen God doing. They say this, The whole assembly kept silence and listened to Barnabas and Paul as they told of all the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. Well, again, this was considered anathema. How in the world could God work through people who weren't His chosen? The Holy Spirit was changing the world from one people at one time to all people for all time. Thank God, because it includes now you and me. The promise is for you and for your children and your children's children, the Scripture says. 
And after Peter gets up and talks about God's movement with the Gentiles on the West Coast, and Saul and Barnabas, Paul, Saul, both names are right, and Barnabas, they get up and they talk about how God's moving through the Gentiles as well. Then James, the very brother of Jesus, gets up. He's also the head of the church in Jerusalem. And he makes a decision about what, what the church is going to do, what God would have them do. And so James stands up and he says this, Therefore, I have reached the decision that we should not trouble those Gentiles who are turning to God. But he's going to make some exceptions about what's required of them so that they can live together. Yes, they're welcome, but they're going to need to do a few things to make sure that all the Jewish Christians don't just leave. It can't be so different that they can't live together. So there's going to be concessions made um, by the Jews and the Gentiles together so they can live together well. And the, here they are. These are the rules. Gentiles must eat only meat prepared in the Jewish way and be sexually pure. Those are the two rules. Temple prostitution was a big problem at that time. And if you sacrificed meat to idols, um, that was considered worshiping a different idol. So that couldn't happen. And that was going to separate the table fellowship of the group. And so it says this in verse 20, but we should write to them, meaning the Gentiles, to abstain only from things polluted by idols and from fornication and from whatever has been strangled and from blood. For Gentiles and Jews to be able to eat together and worship together, to take communion together, they had to figure out a way how the food would be prepared in a way that they could live together and honor one another. The second thing that James says, the second behavior was fornication or pornea. It could not happen. And now, Robert Wall, who's a New Testament scholar, says this. This idea of fornication and pornea, uh, the Greek word is pornea there, has a broad moral currency and Greco-Roman moral thought but probably refers to temple prostitution in this setting. Now, there's been a lot of controversy uh, around this scripture, and, and some Bibles would even translate it as homosexuality. That's not a proper um, translation of the word pornea. It's much broader than that. But certainly, uh, sexual purity was important then, and it's important now, and we need to take that seriously. And as we live together as a community of faith, how we live out our sexual life matters to everyone in the community. So, to have a church that reflects the fullness of God requires constant cooperation between the faith community and the Holy Spirit. If we're going to really be the church that God intends, if we're going to have people from every tribe, every nation, every background, every ethnicity, then it's going to require us to lean into and depend on the Holy Spirit to love well, to bless others, to honor, to not always have our way, to eat food maybe in ways that we wouldn't have it prepared, to do things that maybe we wouldn't do it that way if it were up to us in order, order to show honor and praise and glory to God and God's people. So they were sent off and went down to Antioch. This is referring to Paul and Silas now. And when they gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter when its members read it, they rejoiced at the exhortation. The Gentiles were thrilled. They were in. They were a part of the family of faith. They were part of the family of God. They had been accepted, no longer rejected. And it was a day of celebration. Now, just when you think the controversy about who's in and who's out and what you can do and the sort of the stretches of religiosity, how far those boundaries could go, Paul and Silas stay at the home of a Greek woman who was not Jewish. 
So in those days in the church, the only people basically treated worse than a Gentile were women. And so the scripture is not leaving anybody out, not by race, not by country, not by gender, not by anything. And so a certain woman named Lydia, and, and we know she's not Jewish because Lydia is a Greek name, not a Jewish one. So a woman named Lydia, a worshiper of God, was listening to us, and she was from the city of Thyatira and a dealer in purple cloth. The Lord opened her heart to listen eagerly to what was said by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay at my home. And she prevailed upon us, and they go. Well, how does this work? It's by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is by the risen Christ living and dwelling in us. And when Christ says go, we go. When Christ says stay, we stay. When Christ says pray, we pray. And when God says praise, we praise Him. And this is what we find in the next chapter in Acts 16. As Paul and Silas are going about their ministry. They had come across a young slave girl who had a spirit of divination in her. And Paul ordered that spirit to come out. And it did but the people who owned her, who had made money by her fortune-telling abilities, were mad as a hornet and took him um, to the authorities to have him arrested because he had messed with their income stream. So the scripture says this. The crowd joined in attacking Paul and Silas, and the magistrates had them stripped of their clothing and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had given them a severe flogging, which is terrible as you know, they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them securely. Following these instructions, he put them in the innermost cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. So Paul and Silas, simply doing the ministry laid before them, are jailed and tortured with stocks. Stocks was something that you would force someone's feet apart so you could never rest. And it was a, it was a terrible way of torture. So Paul and Silas are jailed and tortured with stocks in the innermost cell, cell of the jail. This was doomsday for them. And what do they do? When they're in trouble, when God seems distant, they pray. And they sing praises to God. Their response is prayer and singing hymns to God. And as they do this, their prayers are overheard by the other people in the jail. Their songs are overheard by the people in the jail. Now, they didn't do it so they'd be heard. They did it because that was their character. That's, that's just what came up out of them as they were in trouble. They cried out to God and sang praises to Him. And about midnight, the scripture says, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. And God responds. Now in those days, whenever there was an earthquake, the people believed that God, our God, one God Almighty, God of Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, Jesus, is on the move. But in that day, they weren't sure what God it was. It could have been Zeus um, or some other God. And suddenly, the scripture says, there was an earthquake so violent that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were wide open and everyone's chains were unfastened. That's because if you make a jail in a cave and there's an earthquake, they just fall over and you're free. This, friends, is Christianity in action. I want you to see what happens next because this is the really important part. As God moves and provides you a way forward, make sure that you're listening to what God is calling you to do in love of neighbor and maybe even for those who've been causing you trouble or persecution. When the jailer woke up and saw the prison doors wide open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because if in that day, if your prisoners got free, they were going to kill you. So he figured you might as well just go ahead and do it since he supposed that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul 
shouted in a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. We haven't left you. We haven't abandoned you. We could have, but we didn't out of love, out of grace to you, our jailer. And so it's in this love, it's in this falling of Christ, that the jailer has an awakening to the very presence of Jesus, to the very power of God, the God who shakes the prison doors open and makes the stocks fall off of their feet. So the jailer calls for lights, and rushing in, he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas because he knew they were connected to the very power of a God. And he didn't yet know which God that was necessarily, but he knew that there was power there. Then he brought them outside and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He's scared. He has seen the very power of God shaking the chains free. And this is important, friends. Paul and Silas provide a real-time answer to him. When you see God move, you need to proclaim it. You need to say, yes, this is God on the move. When someone says, how can I be saved? We need to be ready with the answer that it is the love and grace of Jesus Christ. Not by anything we can do. Not by our works, lest any of us should boast. But it is by the grace of Jesus that we are saved. We're saved that way. You can be saved that way too. Paul and Silas provide an answer in real time. And so they answered, believe on the Lord Jesus. No other name under heaven shall we be saved by, the scripture says. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And they were saved. And we know that the jailer's heart is changed by his response. He responds with acts of kindness and submission in his baptism, proving his conversion. In verse 33, it says this, At the same hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. He showed them kindness. And then he and his entire family were baptized without delay. And he brought them up into the house and sets food before them. You see that gracious hospitality? The love and kindness of a converted heart. And he and his entire household rejoiced that he had become a believer in God. Friends, that's how it's done. You go in response to what God's calling you to do. Will there be trouble? Sure. There's always trouble sometime. But as you're faithful, as you pray, as you cry out to God, as you sing praises to God, God will move. And as God moves, meet Him there. Praise Him and point to Him. When the people around you say, what's going on? What shall I do? How can I be saved? And we point them to the resurrected Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. So our action step for this week is this. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you the power of kindness. Real kindness, friends to someone you think of as other, someone you think of as them, someone that without the power of the Holy Spirit, you might be tempted to just have a cancel culture because the answer to cancel culture is the love of Jesus and his loving kindness for everyone, even those who oppose you, even those who would jail you, even those who would persecute you the love and power of God that we see in the cross of Jesus Christ, who forgave his enemies and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Is the same power that lives and resides in you. Go and live in the power of the Holy Spirit and let God's kindness pour out through you for the very transformation of the world. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, 
who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.